You're listening to the Charge Forward audio blog by Chargebacks 911, bringing you the latest in payments and fraud. To learn more about how Chargebacks 911 can help you reduce chargebacks and recover revenue lost to fraud, visit us online at chargebacks911.com. This episode is a replay of a webinar entitled Fighting Fraud Before and After the Transaction, featuring experts from Chargebacks 911 and Ravelin. Okay, I want to welcome everybody to the webinar and um, thank you for taking the time out of your day to join us. Uh, my name is Jared Wright. I'm the marketing director here at Chargebacks 911. Also presenting today is Charles Walker, who is the sales manager at Ravelin. Uh, say hi, Charlie. Hello, everyone. Thanks for inviting us, Jared. Um, I also just wanted to uh, mention that Jerry Carr, our CMO, is sitting with me today. Hello. Yep, and also with me is uh, Steve Warner, who's our head of merchant ISO sales in our UK office, uh, which is actually the chargeback company. Um, Steve is here to help me answer some of the more technical questions that were submitted. Say hi, Steve. Yeah, hi, everybody. Great to be on the call. Thanks, Jared. Absolutely. Uh, okay, real quick, before I get started, I just want to go over how this webinar will be structured. Uh, the first part of the webinar will include a short presentation from myself and from Charlie. Um, this portion of the webinar will be fairly visual, so it's important that, if possible, you close other windows and give us your attention. The second portion of the webinar will be a Q&A where we answer many of the questions that were submitted. Uh, this portion will be less visual, so if you just want to listen to that part, that would be A-OK. -okay. Um, we'll be doing our best to answer questions that you submitted during the webinar as well. Uh, we promise to answer any question submitted, uh, whether you submitted it when you registered or if you submit uh, during the webinar. Um, if we can't get to it live on the air, then we will respond via email and give you the best answer that we can. Um, and lastly, this webinar will be available for replay starting tomorrow. Um, however, it's important to know that not all of the Q&A portion will be included in the recording. Uh, so we encourage you to stay with us today so you can get the maximum value out of this event. Okay, and thinking about what I wanted to talk about today, um, I decided to keep my presentation fairly big picture. Um, there'll be plenty of technical information shared in the later part of the webinar, but I, I, I wanted my presentation to address some uh, mind changes that I think are important that merchants make. Um, so I'm just going to read. It says, chargeback management is simple. It's understanding the sources of your chargebacks that is hard. Now, I know what some of you were thinking, there's nothing simple about chargeback management. But what I'm suggesting is that most of the complexities come from a misunderstanding of what's causing your chargebacks. Now, let me explain a little bit further. I'm going to use a metaphor for this next part, so just bear with me. Um, last year, I got married. Uh, and uh, since meeting my wife, I've put on uh, somewhere in the ballpark of 20 pounds. Now, my wife is a dietitian. So needless to say, diet is a popular topic in my household. Now, when I think about weight loss, I typically think about two things, calories and exercise. I personally tend to focus on one or the other, um, typically uh, reducing calories. And I'm also a fan of what I call loophole food. So I like diet soda, fat-free ice cream, things like that as a way to reduce my calories but still get to eat the stuff that I like. Um, my wife keeps explaining to me that part of the reason I'm unsuccessful is that I'm oversimplifying things. 
apparently artificial sweeteners are bad for me and weight loss is a lot more complex than I was pretending. This is exactly the same mistake that merchants make with chargeback management. Chargebacks are a symptom, just like my fat is a symptom. And merchants tend to oversimplify the causes, usually solely focusing on either friendly fraud or criminal fraud. The, the most important part of effectively managing chargebacks is establishing an accurate understanding of what's causing them. The consequences of improperly addressing chargebacks can be disastrous. Okay, now on the next slide, I'm, I'm going to address an elephant in the room. A stat that we use all the time is that 86% of chargebacks are caused by friendly fraud. And we often get a pushback with this stat. Uh, a lot of merchants think it seems a little high. And while I stand by this number, I also understand that Charlie has probably given presentations that include a slide that said something like 86% of chargebacks are caused by criminal fraud. So I want to elaborate on this number and see if we can build some consensus. Um, First, let, let me change the statement to 86% of your chargebacks should be caused by friendly fraud. It's the good work that companies like Ravelin are doing that make this stat possible. Now, I'm sure that to some of you this number still looks high, so let me dive a little bit deeper and address another misconception. First, let's take all the potential factors that I listed earlier in the slide and divide them into these three buckets, plus any factors that, that you guys can think of. I, I'm sure you'll find that they all fit evenly into one of these three buckets. Um, and for now, let's get rid of criminal fraud, because I think Charlie's got some robots or something. He's going to talk about that in the, uh, the next part of this presentation. Um, and let's look, just look at these two. Merchant error, things that you're doing that are, that are causing chargebacks, and friendly fraud, things that your customers are doing. Um, that, that are causing chargebacks. Now what I propose is that the buckets in your business actually look more like this. Now how can I know this? Not because I know anything about your business, right? But because most merchants have too narrow a definition of what friendly fraud is. So if, if you think about it, when, when I'm talking to friends and family and I'm explaining what I do, what I usually say is something like, friendly fraud is when someone calls their bank and files a chargeback in an effort to get something for free. Now, this is a really convenient definition, and it's not altogether wrong, but it actually only describes a small fraction of what friendly fraud is. Most chargebacks contain some element of criminal or some element of merchant error and some element of friendly fraud. So let's rename the extreme cases chargeback fraud and merchant fraud and say that everything else falls somewhere in between. Now, all chargebacks on the left side of the spectrum are preventable. Merchants can make changes to reduce this type of chargeback, and all chargebacks on the right side of the spectrum are representable, representable. The merchant will likely win a properly documented dispute. Now here's the important part. There's a large area in the middle where both the merchant and the consumer share some of the responsibility. What's important to understand is that all of the yellow and all of the orange is friendly fraud. Everything that's under the representable um, bracket. That's all friendly fraud. Um, just because a merchant ships some sneakers late does not mean that the consumer should get free shoes, right? So the merchant should have, if the merchant said, I'm going to ship the sneakers and they're, they're going to be there three to five business days, if they arrive eight business days later, then the merchant shares some of the responsibility. But a, a, a chargeback is still an improperly redressed dispute. So even though the merchant can do something to reduce or prevent that type of chargeback, it does not change the fact that 
the, the chargeback itself is the result of friendly fraud. Now, we encourage merchants to do everything they can to reduce the mistakes, um, but unless they're willing to dispute all friendly fraud chargebacks, customers are going to continue to misuse this mechanism. Now, they may not misuse it on your store, but they're going to misuse it on another store. And somebody that just misused it on your store probably misused it on another store before you, and that store did not dispute that, that chargeback either. Um, now, I was, I was trying to make the argument that chargeback management is simple. So, so here is what a chargeback management plan looks like. If you break it down into three steps, this is how you do it. The first step is you remedy criminal fraud, and Charlie's going to provide some additional information there. The second step is that you're going to remedy merchant error, right? You're going to you're going to look at your chargebacks. You're going to you're going to do uh, uh, deep diagnostics on uh, you know things that you could be doing that could be contributing to chargebacks. Uh, we've written lots of articles. There's plenty of information out there about uh, internal simple mistakes that that merchants make that contribute to chargebacks. You just need to do a, a complete comprehensive audit, um, like the type of audit that that we uh, go through when we bring on a new customer. And then once the criminal fraud is addressed. Once the merchant error is addressed, you dispute the remaining chargebacks or the remaining friendly fraud chargebacks for sure. Um, and, and that's how you get a high win rate. That's how you improve your reputation with the uh, banks that you have relationships with. And that's it. That's, that's what chargeback management looks like. Um, but, the, but the big difficulty that, that merchants face is uh, identifying you know, which bucket chargebacks belong in and identifying the real reason that um, that chargebacks are happening. We see this over and over again when, when we bring a new merchant on. So that's it. So chargeback management is simple. Understanding the sources of your chargebacks is what's hard. Okay? I can, I can almost guarantee that's the case. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw this over to, to Charlie. Uh, thank you, Jared. Appreciate that. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, good to be good to be ah, good to be speaking to you today. Um, so, I having looked at the the list of people attending today, I am uh, only too aware that we're talking to a, a lot of seasoned and uh, very talented fraud professionals. So, um, in in looking at what I was going to present today, I wanted to talk about some of the best things we're seeing our customers do. Um, using things like machine learning and uh, link analysis and, and a few of the other tools that Ravelin provides. But I think mainly I want to talk about the processes behind that and what we're seeing uh, as the most successful ways of, of uh, preventing fraud in the, in the criminal bucket, as I've so kindly got placed next to my face in this slide. Um, so, there we go. Fighting fraud with machine learning. Um, so Ravelin is a machine learning product. We are a business that has built our thesis around fraud to focus on machine learning. But I think one of the biggest steps that we um, have to take when we talk to people is, uh, is understanding what it takes to get that up and running. Because machine learning is such a, a regularly used buzzword in the industry at the moment. A lot of people, it seems like they panic and just go, we've got to do something to do with machine learning because otherwise no, we're going to get left behind. So I think one of the first things that we see customers doing well is taking the time and defining the goals behind what they're using machine learning for. Um, and that really condenses itself into 
taking time to get the integration to whatever system, you know, obviously we work for, you know, I work for Avalon, but there's a bunch of other systems out there that use machine learning, but getting that integration right. And that integration being right, it constitutes collecting as much data from as many areas as possible and pulling it together so that the, uh, the algorithms and um, AI models that you use can do efficient and um, most importantly, uh, high velocity um, Decision, make, make decisions on the data that you give it. Um, what that will mean is it will mean pulling in all of the historical data. So um, your whole history of uh, fraud and customer behavior and transactional data, we brought into the, um, to the system that you're using and you're able to look at, it, um, uh, look at it over a period of time. And most importantly, the algorithms can then look at um, what good and what bad customer behavior looks like. And then when you get a new transaction or a new customer coming through, the behavior and the way that, in which they use your um, website or app or service um, helps you make a decision before you even get to the point of transactions. You don't, in a lot of cases, you don't even need to go that far. So what do I mean when I talk about this data? Um, for anyone that's worked in fraud, I'm sure at one time or another in your life, you have looked at a, um, a sort of payment gateway level of detection. And if you look on the far uh, right-hand side of this slide, that typically looks at the bullet points underneath that. So you're looking at card information, basic customer information, velocity checks, looking at card matching on the, on the system that you're using, maybe some ABS or 3DS type um, processes. What we're saying is you need to start getting into the, uh, the data opportunities on the left-hand side. So as you move along there, you're kind of looking at more kind of customer history and um, registration information, what type of uh, basket items you're looking at, prices, SKUs, all this kind of stuff. And every one of those becomes a uh, data points within the, the overall machine learning model. And, and one of the things that we've helped customers do is actually break down the uh, popular idea at the moment, that having one big model based on all data that a customer, uh, that, that a provider might have, gives you the best possible detection. What we've done is sort of Creates granular models that are a mix of things like random forests and neural networks, so that you can build almost a customized uh, brick by brick um, process of detection for your specific business. So, um, if you have uh, some very um, different data types, uh, one that always sticks with me is I talk to a company in the UK here that provides a big uh, MMO gaming. Um, uh, sorry, an online computer game. And one of the things that was absolutely critical for them from a detection standpoint was woodworking skill within the game. Now that sounds like a fairly ridiculous thing to need to have for fraud, but for them it was critical for a number of reasons, but it's a very long story to explain that, so I won't explain it. But I'm just saying that exploring every avenue of data is really important to, uh, to making sure you get the most out of the models that you are uh, provided. Um, the final thing I want to talk about is, if you look on the extreme left of this uh, timeline, there is a thing called, uh, well, we call it session tracking, um, it could be called guest checkout treasure tracking, um, but it's all about detecting someone before they even get to the point of transaction. And this has become a really interesting part of our, our, our process with our customers, is that we, we look at how um, someone interacts with you before they click transact. So this includes things like if they cut and paste in information to the, to the text boxes when they're filling out their transactional details in the, in the payment flow, um, do they resize the browser? 
um, what type of browser they're using, and how have they reloaded that page. And all that information can help trigger, and also the velocity at which they go through the, uh, the payment pages. And all of that can build up more and more data to help getting this overall vision of what a customer looks like, because that's the ultimate goal, is having the, the, the most information possible to make a call on whether that customer is going to be a good or bad customer for, me, for, for you, and whether you're going to get a chargeback for them, from them. So moving away from machine learning for a second, what Ravelin also does is we work with our customers to perform link analysis. Now, link analysis, I'm sure, is something that uh, a lot of people that you, um, uh, people that I'm speaking to now have done before, but it'll typically be done with like an SQL theory, query. Um, you have to run like big data sets, run it overnight. You come back in the morning and possibly it hasn't worked for whatever reason, we've got an error. And you can't, um, and it takes a little while, but connecting customers is an incredibly powerful way of looking at other aspects of, uh, of pre, um, uh, I guess, pre-order or criminal um, uh, fraud. And what we've found is that, yes, we can stop some people uh, with co who are connected by data points like uh, email addresses, devices, uh, uh, phone numbers, um, obviously your client IDs as well. Um, we, can, we can connect them and stop uh, chargebacks through fraud rings if people are using the same devices. But we also found some other really useful applications for it as well. Um, so in the... Um, uh, with account takeover, we can see if someone's uh, accessing an account who hasn't accessed that account from that device before. With promo code abuse, we can see if the same account is logging on again and again um, using the same promo code. So you're not getting uh, sort of, I guess, more monetary damage from that perspective. Um, and for self-exclusion in the gambling world, um, that if you get self-excluded, you're not allowed to let them uh, transact again with you, but you can see if those accounts are created. So it's a, a really useful way to... Um, to uh, connect, well, to see your customer data, but it's it's mainly useful when you can do it in real time, and I think that's one of the most powerful tools that that uh, we've seen our customers using. So the final thing I want to talk about was, uh, I guess, this is a little bit um, of a complementary one to the, the points that Jared made, but you know we are focused on stopping criminal fraud. Um, so people who are actively going onto our customers' websites to start uh, to, to take something from them for free or use stolen credit card details to do that. Um, the most difficult thing in our world is friendly fraud or first-party fraud, because there's there's almost no way of seeing it from our perspective. You know, you can have a customer that's a good customer for five, ten, fifteen, twenty transactions, uh, and then all of a sudden they become a bad customer um, for a number of different reasons. Maybe they've had a big dinner on the Friday night, and they don't fancy paying for it the next day. So um, it's one of the reasons we've uh, looked well, look forward to the partnership with Chargebacks 911, and, and, um, and it, it fills some gaps in the pieces that we're looking at. So I think I've covered everything I wanted to say, Jared. Um, I will pass it back to you for the questions once we get through these final couple slides. Great. Uh, thank you, Charlie. That, that, was, that was very interesting. Um, okay, so so yeah, now we've made it through the presentation parts. We're going to kind of get into questions here. Um, just as a reminder, you can go ahead and submit questions uh, uh, live in the webinar, and uh, we'll try to get those answered uh, for you during the during the webinar. But if we can't, we promise to get back to you. Um, all right. So the first question that was submitted: uh, What is the best way to prevent fraud? I, th I think Charlie, you guys would be the best at answering this. Um, what, what have you got to say? 
by Ravelin. Um, <laughs> but uh, in, in, in all seriousness, um, uh, I think that really getting a deep understanding of the customers that you have is the best way of doing this. Um, uh, the the limitations of fraud prevention systems, and I'm you know talking about kind of our side of the market here, is is when you're not seeing as much data as, as you can, or maybe you're not using as much data as you can. Um, it's it's in a world where you know exactly what each customer looks like, it's much easier to make a decision, even if you're not just talking about machine learning, but you're also talking about um, uh, a fraud analyst going in and reviewing a customer. The more data they have to make that decision makes it easier for them. So maybe the review times for them drop by 50% uh, or you know, 90% or whatever it is. So data, 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 I think is my answer for that. Okay, great. I, that actually sounds like a very similar answer to the to the best way to prevent chargebacks. Um, so yeah, uh, you know, knowing knowing things that that you're doing, knowing what your customer uh, tradition normal behaviors like, being able to identify anomalies and react quickly, I think is important on on uh, both sides, both before and after the transaction. Um, okay, so the next question is. How can merchants avoid arbitration? Steve, have you got something on this for me? Um, thanks, Jared. Um, I think this is a really interesting question, actually, because people don't tend to think about arbitration cases initially. Um, but arbitration can be really painful, very expensive, and as far as we're concerned, best avoided. So we think the best way to avoid arbitration is to put all your efforts and this is both at a merchant level, and it's the same logic we apply in chargebacks 911. We put all our efforts into the initial chargeback or the initial request for information. Um, be super accurate with all the information that goes back to your acquirer. Be comprehensive, have a really robust um, defense case. Do it all from the start. Um, don't don't allow any room for an arbitration case to, to be filed because that, that's, that's not a great place to be. Um, I think a really important element in submitting robust chargeback defense or, or representments is to add that human element to the data that any merchant will have. So the data's good, you must make sure that data is accurate, that it's relevant to the chargeback that, that has been received but also ensure that there is some human intelligence going into this representment. Please don't allow it just to be done by automation because we know that the, um, the success rates of representments through just automation is extremely low. Um, it's the combination of great data and human intelligence that, that really makes the difference. So, Quick answer to this question is do it all up front, really attack that chargeback when it first comes in and make sure that the response that goes, the initial response that goes back is full, it's detailed, everything you have that's relevant to the underlying transaction and that chargeback is in that initial representment. Is that okay, Jared? Yeah, no, I think I think that's great. Yeah, I, I would I would only add that I think um, a lot of times merchants don't realize or they don't really think about the fact that the the case that you the representment case that you put together actually gets sent to your customer um, uh, after the fact. So if you've made mistakes in there, if uh, uh, 
you know, you've used automation or if, if it's in any way inaccurate, then um, the, the, the customer is going to immediately call their bank and say, well, wait a minute, I didn't log in, uh, right. you know, on, on this date. I didn't do this thing. Um, you know, so, so even when automation is effective at certain types of chargeback disputes, um, what ends up happening invariably is that that automation is imprecise and then uh, uh, those, those one chargebacks, um, you know, second chargebacks end up being filed. So, uh, so just do it right the first time, you know, uh, compile all of the evidence that you have and only the evidence that you have to, to, to fight that dispute because I, th I think Steve's absolutely right. That's that's the biggest thing. Okay, how can we identify if a customer is genuine? Charlie, I think I think this is you guys. Sure. Um, well, I, I guess this kind of feeds into um, a little bit of what we talked about in the last uh, in the last uh, question. Um, the way that we identify uh, how a customer is genuine is we look at. Uh, all of the historical behavior of uh, one of our customers, um, sorry, yeah, one of our customers' customer bases, and the traits behind that customer that's been behaving well. So, I mean, one of the things people always forget with, uh, not, maybe not always forget, but so kind of maybe gets left behind slightly with fraud prevention is the fact that you can, there are huge wins to be had through uh, streamlining the process for good customers. Um, one interesting thing that you can do is, is Kind of have levels of um, levels of customers based on the, the detection that you do, and making it easier for the for the best looking customers to transact transact. So putting the effort into identifying those good customers will actually have some wins for your sales and marketing guys. And I think that's when uh, fraud prevention really kind of becomes central to a business's development. Um, I think. Yeah, I think that's. I mean, that's to, to add some color to that. I think every every time we score a customer. Uh, and by score, we mean uh, based on what their behavior is, we give them a score between zero and 100, and most likely to be a fraudster. Um, most of the time, we're marking customers as genuine, like 98, 98% of the uh, customers on any customers or on any of our, um, our clients' network is going to be genuine. So we're continually scoring customers as genuine. And it's very rare that we're scoring them as, as fraudsters. Um, it's very important, obviously, that we identify the people who are uh, acting fraudulently, but you can use that information, that good information, if you like, uh, in multiple ways to build up trust in your organization uh, and to build up a different experience for the people who are marked as good. Uh, and creating a sort of in-between experience where people are just not sure. In Europe, for instance, if we're uh, customers in a certain score range, uh, we'll put them through 3D Secure, which is an extra identification step uh, before they can transact, which means we're not turning them away or we're not taking a risk in letting them in. We're just creating a different levels of experience for different types of uh, uh, customers, depending on their their the scale of their genuineness to fraudness. All right. What are the best practices, and what evidence should you show to successfully win a dispute? Wow, this is this this is a heavy question, Steve. You think you got it? <laughs> I'll give it a go. You fill in the gaps for me, Jared. This links, I think, very closely to the last question about avoiding arbitration. Um, it does all come down to the data that, that's in the initial representment. Um, there is a wonderful term in payments called providing compelling evidence. Um, and it's the compelling evidence that sits within a representment that uh, is, is so important. Um, the compelling evidence itself.
How can a small e-commerce store get started with fraud protection? Thanks, Jared. Um, so I was a little bit nervous about asking this question, answering this question, not because I, I'm not sure about the answer, but just because small is a kind of terrifying word in this question because it's, it's all about point of perspective. But for context, I'm going to assume it's sort of a company doing maybe a few hundred to maybe a thousand transactions a month, um, probably using something like uh, Shopify or Magento, um, you know, kind of just getting going sort of business. Um, I think honestly, if I if I was one of those businesses, the way I would go around it is I would. Uh, there's some providers out there that um, offer you a full kind of uh, chargeback guarantee type solution. Um, for small retailers, it works pretty well. Um, it's I feel pretty comfortable saying that because it's something that Ravelin as a business is never going to touch. Um, and it's that's kind of where I would go with it. I think that the big thing when you're a small business is you do not want to take on this as a as a division. You know, you don't want to be in your kind of growth, uh, getting out there selling phase and having to deal with um, the whole world of online payments and uh, fraud prevention. Um, I um, I think that's how I would approach it, if it, based on the experience I have. I mean, did you, would you go in a different way there, Jerry? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, there is, uh, for a small, again, in, in that size of company, there is, there is security through obscurity. Uh, there aren't necessarily that many people, depending on what you're selling, of course. Uh, but there are, your challenge is trying to get sales, not necessarily trying to uh, check which ones are the good ones. Um, your PSP should be able to help. Um, you should select your PSP based on what their uh, fraud capabilities are. Um, and there's some good ones who are working in small e-commerce companies now. Um, Braintree and, and Stripe are, are pretty good um, at that smaller uh, end. Um, and just keep an eye on, learn what your fraud looks like is the advice I always give. You are going to get some fraud. Um, when you do get it, dispute it. Um, but even as part of the disputation process, if it's third-party fraud, uh, really try and understand what happened and why. Uh, because as you get bigger, that information about what kind of fraud you're vulnerable to uh, is extremely valuable in selecting the right fraud tool to help you in the longer term. Um, Chargeback guarantee model is also good. It's expensive. Um, um, and you think you'd want to be in slightly phase two as a small e-commerce company, so you can figure maybe a thousand transactions a month to consider it, but it's a really good option uh, for e-commerce companies with reasonably high average transaction value, um, i.e. people sell luxury goods, for instance, it's a, it's a really good option. Um, but yeah, but most of, what, most of all, just try, monitor what's going on, learn from it, and then get ready to select the right tool when you get a bit bigger. All right, that's really good advice. Um, yeah, it's never too early to, get to start getting a handle on um, that information. Um, all right, I think I got, we have one more question today, and then um, we're going to let you, everybody get back to work. Uh, or if you're on the East Coast, maybe go have lunch. Um, all right, Steve, this is for you. Um, how can a merchant reduce the costs associated with managing chargebacks? Oh, okay. Um, an extremely good question, um, and I'm going to try and answer this without it being a sales pitch of any kind. I think this is a massive issue for merchants, particularly as their business grows, because as their business grows, um, inevitably they will get more chargebacks. Uh, that, that, is, that is the way of the world. Currently, when I speak with merchants, um, really all they can do is then grow their in-house chargeback management team um, and incur more costs, not necessarily improving their win rate, but growing their costs. And in some cases, this 
can become a real burden for merchants as they grow their business. All of a sudden, chargebacks and the management of chargebacks uh, becomes a consideration when they're growing their business. And that really shouldn't be the case. Um, not being, being quite blunt about it, I think it's fair to say that no merchant ever set up their business to handle chargebacks. They, they wanted to sell goods, services, products, and great things. The last thing they want to do is spend time and effort and money managing these things called chargebacks, which are a real burden. I think all merchants need to um, look at, we've talked about um, um, chargebacks caused by what we call merchant error. I think there are things a merchant can do to make sure their processes and procedures are really accurate and therefore reduce chargebacks caused by merchant error. But fundamentally, I think merchants should also look outside of their company to providers like Chargebacks 911 to really help them in this area. Uh, chargeback management is specialised, there is no doubt about it. It takes a lot of human resource and a lot of data and a lot of specialisation. Um, this will never be a core activity for a merchant and through speaking to many merchants over, over a long time, it's very clear to me that all that happens with chargeback management is the costs grow. Um, and therefore, merchants struggle to work out what to do. I think I would encourage merchants to look outside of their business, bring in external um, help in the same way that, that, that Ravelin would help it uh, with front-end fraud screening. Um, again, as, as, as Charlie and Jerry have said, please don't try and build the, the, uh, a Ravelin equivalent. In the same way, I would suggest chargeback management should be looked at in the same way. It's highly specialised. And if people want really effective results, and if they want to, if merchants want to keep control of their costs, and also ensure that their staff are focused on their core business, and not something called chargeback management, if they want all the staff focused on core business, then look outside the business, bring in external help, and if that um, if that external um, entity um, is is good then hopefully what would happen here is that revenue will be saved, um, operational costs will reduce internally in the company, and all of a sudden chargebacks no longer becomes a burden for the merchant as they, as they grow their business. So in short, I think to, to reduce costs, start looking outside the company, stop trying to make this a core activity of, of, a, of a merchant's business, and engage with specialists in the market, like, like ourselves at, at Chargebacks number one. Jared, I tried to stop that being a sales pitch, but, and I hope I did. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I the, only, <laughs> the only thing that I would say, uh, uh, Steve, is I was just going to disagree with you on uh, uh, the, the statement that you should find a company like Chargebacks 911, <laughs> because as you and I both know, there is no company like Chargebacks 911. If you guys, if, if, they're, if they're serious about reducing their costs and, and taking the burden of chargeback management outside of their um, company, then then there's nobody better. There's nobody that's been doing it longer, and you won't get better results than uh, with Chargebacks 911. Um, so there Good you point. go. There's, there's the sales pitch. Good point. Okay, I think that's about it today. If you guys, anybody wants to add, add a couple more questions, we will uh, get back to you offline. Um, everybody enjoy the rest of their afternoon or morning or whatever time it is. Um, thanks again. Does anybody, uh, 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 Charlie? Do you have anything to say? Anybody have anything to say? And nothing, just thanks for your time and uh, enjoy speaking to you and having your chat today. Yeah, absolutely, guys. Always.